Welcome to the public morality. Winston Churchill once said, now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. As we've muddled through this season of democratic instability here in America, I've thought about Churchill's words. The law of democracy in effect are the guardrails that protect America's democratic Republican form of government. But what happens when citizens no longer respect the guardrails of our institutions? Is that the beginning of the end as Churchill stated? The end of the beginning of our democratic rule in America? To answer this and other questions, we are joined once again by NYU constitutional law professor, Richard Pildes. Professor Richard Pildes, welcome once again to the public morality. I'm always glad to talk to you, Byron. Uh, to frame this conversation, when you speak specifically of the law of democracy, what do you mean? Well, I mean uh, the whole range of laws and policies that shape the democratic process in the United States. So it ranges from things like election administration, rules about the voting process, campaign finance, the Voting Rights Act, redistricting, uh, the role of direct democracy, uh, the role of political parties and how the law regulates political parties, sort of the, the, the large set of, of background issues that most people tend to take for granted because this is just the way we've done things that actually shape the way democracy and elections take place in the United States. Now, now since our inception, uh, uh, as a nation, let's start the inception in 1787. Um, this role of law and democracy, I, I, I'm assuming, is one that's been embraced by the judicial branch. Has that has that always been accepted, or was it sort of a a process that sort of evolved into that? Uh, no, well, it's complicated a bit because there are state courts, of course, and, and federal courts and the U.S. Constitution. In terms of, of, of constitutional law involving democracy in the United States, actually, the federal courts for most of American history took the view um, that it wasn't appropriate uh, for the courts to uh, deal with claims of what they called political rights. Uh, and so the courts would not get involved, the federal courts at least, would not get involved. The U.S. Constitution um, did not have a, a significant role to play uh, in, in terms of legal doctrine uh, in overseeing the democratic process. And that really began to change dramatically in the 1960s. And in the 1960s, the Supreme Court uh, became much more actively involved in overseeing the democratic process uh, starting with things like what we call the one vote, one person or one person, one vote doctrine um, that, that was created as a matter of constitutional law. And also with the court beginning to recognize in the 1960s that the right to vote uh, was a, a fundamental right under the U.S. Constitution um, and that the federal courts would examine uh, uh, voting policies to make sure they were consistent with constitutional law. Um, now, the Constitution, of course, creates a lot of, of, of the structure of democracy in the United States, just the, you know, the nature of two-year terms for the House and six-year terms for the Senate, 
um, the Electoral College, of course, for electing the president, um, and a lot of amendments to the Constitution have dealt with voting. But in terms of really uh, sort of active federal court enforcement of voting rights, that doesn't really begin until the 1960s. And then, of course, you have the, the hugely significant uh, uh, emergence of Congress in the modern era as a major uh, institutional figure protecting voting rights with the enactment of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Is some of this uh, complicated, given your last answer, by the fact that uh, Article 1, Section 4 um, grant largely grants the jurisdiction of elections to the states and and that's emboldened, I'm assuming, by the Tenth Amendment. Um, is that, does that complicate what you just articulated? Yeah, so so much of the way our, our, our election system works is a product of uh, very early American history. Uh, and so one of the things that's always remarkable to uh, uh, observers from other countries um, that we take for granted is that even for national elections, even for the highest office in the land, the presidency, we have an incredibly decentralized election system. And it's not just decentralized to the states, it's that we have thousands of jurisdictions, the counties uh, that play significant roles in administering our national elections. And that partly comes from that provision you mentioned in the constitution, we call it the elections clause that gives state legislatures the power to set the rules for national elections. Now, Congress can always step in and override that. And, and Congress has done that with a number of federal statutes. But you know, even so, fundamentally, as, as most people I think know from their experiences, even for national elections, states set rules about things like, uh, can you vote absentee? Under what conditions can you vote absentee? Will there be early voting? How many days of early voting will there be? Uh, and all sorts of other uh, aspects uh, in, involved in, in the voting process. We still, even for national elections, uh, have states and local governments playing the major role. Um, and of course, that's not the way democracy is structured in most other major Western democracies. They tend to have more centralized uh, structures and processes for their uh, national elections. So that's a product of our history um, because things got set up that way very early on. And then uh, there's what we call path dependency, that once you go down a certain path, uh, it often gets very hard to kind of shift over to uh, some other path. Um, that's a great answer to my next question that leads me perfectly. I'm going to go back to the year 2000 and the election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. Uh, but first, if you would, take us back and remind our listeners how the Supreme Court got involved in that election, if you would. Uh, okay, so I'll start with the major story. If we have time, there's a, a secondary story I want to get into the picture, too. But the major story is uh, back then, Florida, like a lot of states, used what were called you know, punch cards for their ballots, that you had to punch out a little chad, as it was called, to indicate your vote. Um, the election was incredibly close. After a recount, George Bush was ahead by 530 some votes in Florida. Um, Florida was gonna determine the outcome of the election. And um, 
and, and the process went to a recount uh, and we started discovering uh, all sorts of, of microscopic issues about these punch card ballots that sometimes people would partially punch the chat out, but not fully, and the machine wouldn't read it as a vote. Um, sometimes people would indent the, the, the ballot so it was clear what they were intending to do, but they didn't actually punch it through, uh, and the machines couldn't read the vote. And so they started recounting by hand. Uh, and, uh, and there was tremendous litigation, con constant litigation from the time this recount began. Uh, federal courts, state courts, mostly in state courts, it went to the US Supreme Court twice. Uh, ultimately, the Supreme Court held that the way Florida was doing the recount was unconstitutional because different counties in Florida were taking different positions on what counted as a valid vote. So there was a kind of an arbitrary quality. If you marked your ballot uh, the same way in one county or another county, in one county it might be counted, in another county it wouldn't. So the Supreme Court held that the um, count was taking place in an unconstitutional way, but then the Supreme Court also held that by the time of this second Supreme Court decision in this saga, um, Basically, there was no longer time for Florida to continue the recount process, given the meeting of the Electoral College that was coming up. Uh, and so the Supreme Court uh, ordered the recount to stop at that point. So the result of that was George Bush won the election by that 530 some vote margin in Florida um, and became president. Uh, the final Supreme Court vote on, on shutting down the recount was five to four, so it was a controversial decision. Um, and that's the kind of general story about Florida. Um, I do want to mention the secondary story, if I can, because Please, it goes back. Go well, it goes back to what we were talking about with this tremendous decentralization of elections in the U.S. <clears throat> so people forget this part of the saga, but before all these fights about the recount, we had this bizarre situation in one county in Florida, Palm Beach County, in which the county had designed the ballot as was typical, um, and they, they designed a very badly structured ballot. And it created a lot of confusion. Uh, and what happened was that many voters who thought they were voting for Al Gore, accidentally without realizing it, voted for a third party candidate because of the way the ballot was designed. And if that mistake had not happened, we would never have gotten into this whole recount saga because there were enough votes that were enough voters who clearly intended to vote for Al Gore and thought they had voted for Al Gore, who mistakenly cast a ballot for a third party candidate in Palm Beach County a large enough number that Gore would have won Florida if this mistake in the ballot design had not been made. Now, it's because the ballot was designed at the local level, not at the state level, not at the national level, that a mistake like this could happen without being picked up in advance. And so it's, that's a, an amazing example of uh, uh, some of the cost of, of how decentralized the system is, even in presidential elections, that the very design of the ballot varies from county to county. 
We don't have a national ballot. Uh, we don't even have a single statewide ballot for national elections. So I just wanted people forget that part of the story, but I, I always find it a, a really amazing part of the story. Indeed. Um, now let's let's jump forward 22 years. God, it's amazing to think it's been that long. But let's jump forward 22 years, and one of the takeaway, one of my personal takeaways, is that many that supported Al Gore detested the Supreme Court ruling, but nevertheless accepted the court's decision. It feels to me we're in a very, very different place in 2022. Your thoughts? I agree with you 100% on that. Uh, there are a bunch of things that are just so dramatically different now than they were in 2000. So first of all, it's hard for people to believe this or remember this, but back in 2000, a lot of people did not think there was a dramatic difference between George W. Bush or Al Gore. The, you know, we, we were at the early stages of the polarization that's happened in American politics. Uh, and so the stakes were not perceived to be as high as they would be today. Um, uh, you did not have social media back then to any significant extent. Um, you did not have massive distrust in the electoral process, which we now have on both sides of the spectrum. Um, you did not have uh, a sense that politics was existential. That's the way I put it, where many people on both sides believe that if the election comes out uh, against their candidate, the country will never be the same again, so that everything is at stake, or so the stakes are incredibly uh, high. Um, you, we didn't even have cable television. I mean, we had cable television, but it, it was it was a, a much more minor thing. I remember I was um, the legal analyst for NBC News back then, working with Tom Brokaw, and when we would uh, go on to discuss election related, you know, cases that were happening constantly during this period in 2000, the audiences would be, you know, 20 some million because people primarily still got their news from the major broadcast networks. So you had more, more of a common uh, focal point for getting information. So well, that note, I still remember Tim Russell in his little mini whiteboard, Florida, Florida, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I, I forgot about that. But yeah, now I remember that. Uh, I remember that, too. So I, I, I think back then, um, you know, there was a lot of unhappiness among Democrats, for sure, about the Supreme Court decision. Uh, but there was um, the, the, the climate was nothing like it is today. Uh, and if we uh, had the unfortunate circumstance of, of an election that close, I, I think it would be an incredibly explosive situation now. I think there are, uh, it's hard to find any institutions um, that could, you know, play a role in resolving an election like that, where the results would be widely accepted by the losing side and their supporters. Uh, I don't think the Supreme Court uh, uh, would be that institution now. I don't think Congress would be that institution. I don't think the state legislatures or state Supreme Courts would be that kind of an institution. Um, 
you know, and I think that's a, it, it's, it's clearly a dangerous place for any democracy to be uh, where there's a risk that the losing side won't accept the legitimacy um, of the outcome of an election um, and that there's no way to convince them that the election was decided fairly. On that note, um, that, that brings us to January 6, 2021. Um, I saw a poll as late as November, where uh, of November of 2021, where 68% of Republicans believe the election was stolen from former President Trump. So my question to you, sir, in a two-party system, can democracy survive with such a high number within one of the major political parties without any data, I might add, has such high distrust about one of our fundamental institutions? Um, I think, you know, certainly it's a very, it's a very dangerous circumstance for, for uh, any democracy. Um, you know, I think it partly depends on the depth of those feelings um, and the extent to which people are prepared to act and, and get mobilized around that, um, as opposed to, you know, saying that on a survey uh, instrument that they're, that they're asked about. Um, but um, I, I, I think it's very, very dangerous for democracies um, if, you know, a significant part of the country doesn't accept the outcome of an election as legitimate. I mean, that's one of the great achievements of the United States historically, that, you know, we had we had uh, continuously had regularly scheduled elections from the beginning. We were really had been the only democracy that, that had elections even during a massive civil war, uh, as we did it uh, in 1864, um, you know, the United Kingdom, for example, during World War II postponed elections until after the war. Um, and, uh, you know, even, even with the Civil War, um, it's not that the South disputed the fact that Lincoln had won the election. Uh, they, the South seceded because they were hostile to the policies they thought he would support. Um, yeah, so, uh, the most disputed election we'd had in our history was in 1876, and that was really a very in, in, intensely and legitimately disputed election. There was, this is, it was sort of the aftermath of the Civil War still, and in several Southern states, um, there was significant suppression of Black voters, there was a lot of fraud, there were, there were almost internal civil wars within those states. Um, and that was a very dangerous moment for the United States in terms of the stability of elections. Uh, but, but, ever, but never since then, including in 2000, um, have we been in the position that, uh, you know, I fear we will be in in, in, in 2024, uh, at least if the election is, is close. I'm speaking with NYU constitutional law professor Richard Pildes about the law of democracy. Um, ironically, I was about to ask you about the Hayes Children Compromise and how does that, how do you compare that with not only the election of 2000, but the election of, of 2020? And neither one of those seems to rise you know, to that level. So take a couple of minutes, if you would, just to, to go into some of the 
intricacies of the 1876 election in the Hayes Tilden Compromise? Uh, okay, sure. So um, uh, after the Civil War, the national government um, continued to have federal troops uh, in much of the former Confederacy. Um, there were um, uh, governments uh, that had been in power in those Southern states uh, that were Republican governments, the party of Lincoln uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War. But there was a lot of resistance to those governments uh, among white Southerners, or at least the former plantation uh, elite, if you will, of, of, of these Southern states. Um, and, um, uh, and the election involved the Republican candidate, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, the Democratic candidate, Samuel Tilden, the Democratic party was the party of the South at that point, or the, I should say the party of the white South or the, particularly the white former plantation owning South. Um, and um, in three Southern states, uh, there were huge disputes about the legitimacy of the election in part because uh, there was violence, uh, there were real struggles about who would control the government in these states. Um, some of these states sent two slates of electors to Congress, uh, one for Hayes, one for Tilden. Um, and uh, the outcome of the election was going to turn on, on what to do with the ballots from these three states or the electoral votes from these three states. And one of the things that that election exposed, which is highly relevant to 2020 and 2024, is that we did not have any mechanism set up in the Constitution or by statute uh, for helping to resolve a disputed presidential election. Uh, and, and, and particularly when you had this situation of states uh, either sending two slates of electors or disputes about who had validly been selected as the electors from that state in the election. And so what happened is Congress to try to resolve this created an ad hoc commission of 15 people uh, to recommend to Congress what to do with the votes from these three states. And Congress agreed to be bound by that recommendation unless both houses of Congress agreed to overturn it. Uh, and so this 15 member commission, which had Supreme Court justices and members of Congress on it, um, and where the deciding vote was a, a Supreme Court justice, um, ultimately recommended uh, an outcome under which Hayes, the Republican, would become president. Um, and there's a view that uh, as part of the willingness of, of, of Democrats to accept this outcome, um, Hayes, uh, agreed that he would withdraw the federal troops that were still in the South. So, so Congress created this ad hoc. It was like, what are we going to do? How are we going to resolve this massive conflict? Congress created this commission to do that and then abided by the results of that commission. Now, the reason that's relevant for today is in the aftermath of that, Congress said, you know, we better figure out a structure or how to deal with a, a future disputed presidential election so we don't have to make things up on the spot if we're ever in this position again. And, and that's what led Congress eventually to create what's called the Electoral Count Act, which is the law 
that specifies the relationship between Congress and the states when it comes to the electoral vote process. And that's the law in 2020, or really it's 2021 um, because this happens in January. Um, that's the law under which January 6th took place. Uh, January 6th is when Congress receives and counts the votes and acts according to that Electoral Count Act. You know, that's the act that says uh, you need one member of the House, one member of the Senate to formally object to receiving the vote from a state if there's going to be any objection. And then if there is an objection, the two houses go to their separate chambers, decide whether to accept or reject the objection. That's the statute under which the Republicans in the House and the Senate who objected to receiving the votes from certain states acted. And that's the statute under which some of these debates took place about uh, what the role of Vice President Pence was supposed to be, both under the Constitution and the statute. Does the Vice President have no role other than a kind of formal presiding role? Does the Vice President uh, have the power to make any judgments about whether uh, to not accept the votes from a state? Uh, or and 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 then to have to be overridden by Congress um, if Congress disagrees with that judgment. So, uh, so 1876 produced the Electoral Count Act. Eventually, my view is we need to update, clarify, reform the Electoral Count Act before the 2024 election because it's been well known among you know people who study this um, that. There are problems with that statute. There's a lot of ambiguity. Um, there are things that maybe aren't ambiguous, but but are not um, clear to Congress that need to be clarified. Um, and uh, you know, I very much hope among the other uh, issues that Congress gets on the agenda that it will uh, turn to dealing with the Electoral Count Act. Uh, you know well in advance of the actual 2024 presidential election, because you don't want to get that debate swept up into the election process. You, you, earlier, you talked about um, how other countries around the world look at our elections with, with a little bit of confusion, shall we say. Talk about, if you would, the impact of January 6th, not just the erosion of those 234 years of peaceful transfer of power, but the global perception of American democracy, how did it impact that at all? I, I think there's no question that it did. Um, I think that, um, uh, I, I, I guess there are two aspects um, that, that had that effect. One is just those visual images uh, of uh, what happened at the Capitol. Um, you know, that's the symbol of American government Congress is performing one of its most important constitutional functions, you know, uh, formally accepting the vote in the presidential election. Um, and so, you know, partly it's, it's uh, the imagery of the United States not being able to protect the seat of government. Uh, and then more generally, it's um, the recognition of how much uh, distrust there is uh, about the election process in the United States uh, and, and what that means going forward uh, for, um, 
future elections um, and the, the stability of the United States and the depth of polarization uh, and, and conflict in the United States um, that um, I, I think was eye-opening uh, uh, in a lot of countries in Europe. I do a lot of interviews with journalists from other countries. And, uh, and frankly, all of that was, was, was stunning to me and I assume to many Americans as well, because as you say, for so long, we've just been able to take for granted that whatever you know, our differences, whatever the policy conflicts, um, we have a stable election process, uh, the losers accept the results of the process. Um, and, you know, that's been pushed back at some from, from time to time, but but nothing like what happened in 2020 or, or since then in the aftermath of 2020. And I, I think there's no question that it is um, raised you know, concerns uh, in the minds of, of, of other countries, leaders of other countries of exactly how divided the United States is, um, uh, how much um, disorder might uh, arise, um, you know, even uh, uh, the question of whether we will have really massive conflict over the results of the 2024 election. Uh I've been thinking of a recent uh, back to James Madison and, and specifically back to Federalist 10. And, you know, he was obviously concerned about factions and, and the safeguards to, to, to put in place to thwart uh, what we would call the tyranny of the majority. That said, how close are we in your view to maybe I'm just going to call it a, a Madisonian inverse in that instead of having a tyranny of the majority, we sort of crossed the line, and now we have, or, or close to, uh, a tyranny of the minority. How do you see that? Um, I, I think that that uh, it, it, it's possible. Um, you know, as you know, there are a lot of components to this uh, um, issue. So, uh, you know, if you take the Senate, for example. Um, which is the, the primary institution that people uh, point to, as well as the Electoral College um, uh, on this question. When, when the, the, the country was formed, the disproportion between the population of the largest state and the smallest state was something like 13 to one, uh, with Virginia being the, the largest state. Um, and now the disproportion is something, I forget the exact number, but it's in the 70s to one, something like you know, California to, I think it's Wyoming. Wyoming? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so, so e even the, the differences that existed at the time based on states being represented as such in the Senate, you know, have, have dramatically increased. And the Senate is the most, um, disproportionate institution in any of the democracies of the West today. There are other countries that also have representation for political units in, a, in one of their chambers, but, but no, no place has a disproportion of 70 something to one um, as we do in the, in the, um, in the Senate. Uh, and then of course with the Electoral College, um, which hasn't uh, 
except for um, 1876 and 2000, the two elections that we're talking about, um, until 2016 and 2020, um, it, it had rarely, the winner of the popular vote had almost always won the electoral college as well. Um, now we're starting to have a circumstance, you know, first we had it in 2016, where Hillary Clinton won the overall popular vote by, I think it was at least 3 million. I don't remember the exact number now, but lost the Electoral College. Uh, in 2020, Joe Biden won the popular vote by something like 9 million votes, but could have lost the Electoral College if 40 some thousand votes had shifted uh, between a few states. Um, and so, um, there are reasons to, to think, you know, we're in an era in which the, the gap between the popular vote and the winner of the Electoral College could become far more significant than uh, has ever been the case before and on a regular basis, not just one aberrational election, but over um, several elections. Um, and, uh, uh, the losing side in those battles is going to be, uh, for, I, I would guess, you know, very unhappy um, that they have the popular majority, but uh, that that's not reflected in these institutions and then in the policies that, that get adopted. Um, now, the problem is, you know, these are institutions created by the Constitution. Uh, our constitution is the most difficult to amend in the world. It would be hard enough to amend provisions on the Senate or the Electoral College, um, even if the amendment process was easier. But when you combine that with a very, very difficult amendment process, uh, I, I was actually reading, I don't know if this is completely accurate, but Justice Scalia once said that um, he had calculated that uh, 2% of the population could successfully block a constitutional amendment that 98% wanted. I haven't run those numbers myself to validate that, but he said, um, you know, it should be hard to amend the constitution, but not that hard. Um, and so those are the features that are hardwired in, the, the difficulty of the amendment process, the Senate, the electoral college. Um, and it's a it's it, it, it's also a dangerous situation when uh, if, if there's major dissatisfaction uh, with by large majorities with the structure of democratic institutions and very little capacity to modify those structures in response to very large popular discontent, uh, you know that's that's another potential. Uh, a source of, you know, tremendous conflict uh, going forward. Uh, I'm also thinking about uh, what uh, scholar Norman Ornstein from the American Enterprise Institute uh, calculates that by 2040, 70% of the population is going to live in 30% of the state. So that only exacerbates the, the, the problem, at least with the Senate that you're talking about. Yes, if, if these, these disproportions could, could grow even um, larger, yes. Uh, I can't help but look at the ruling in Shelby County v. Holder as a significant data point that has helped bring us to the present moment. Your thoughts? 
Um, well, uh, however unfortunate the, the Shelby County decision, um, I, I, I'm not sure what moment we're talking about precisely, but the when I think of the, the, the moment we're in, I think of this tremendous polarization, this tremendous division, this tremendous cultural conflict. Um, and I, I don't know, you know how much one particular decision is a major contributor to those very, very large structural forces. Um, well, let, me, let me be the, more specific. I'm, I'm sorry. Let me, let me, be, more, let me yeah, be more specific. And, mm -hmm. and, and I'm specifically thinking um, prior to Shelby County, it would be unthinkable that state legislatures might say without any data, without any facts, um, to make voting more difficult for, for certain populations. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically about in that area. I'm sorry for the confusion. Yeah, okay. So, so one thing to understand about the, the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act regime, which is what Shelby County uh, dealt with, is that um, it applied to nine states and some counties in the U.S. And the states were basically uh, uh, southern states like um, you know, Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia, uh, parts of Florida, uh, Virginia, and, um, and, it, and it applied to changes in voting laws. Um, and a change in a voting law in those areas couldn't be legally effective unless it, be, it had been approved by the US Justice Department. Um, so, a lot of the con so some of the conflicts over voting issues that we see going on today are in states that would have been covered if Shelby County had been decided differently. But many of those conflicts are in states that were not covered by the vote that part of the Voting Rights Act um, and not affected by the Shelby County decision. So, for example, Wisconsin, you know, is a major battleground uh, over uh, voting issues. Uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, is a major battleground. Uh, Michigan is, is another uh, one of the major uh, uh, sort of battlegrounds or flashpoints. Um, and that part of the Voting Rights Act didn't apply to those states. So what Section 5 would have done is it would have blocked certain changes in the states that were covered. Those same changes could have been adopted in states that were not covered like Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or, or Michigan. Um, and, and the pattern that we're seeing now, you know, about where voting policies are, are being changed and, and made more restrictive, you know, it, it tends to correlate with where Republicans have unified control of government. Um, it's a very partisan uh, dynamic. Um, and, uh, that occurs in some of these Southern states, um, not all of them. Virginia actually um, has, you know, quite expansive, open, accessible voting policies. Um, of course, a, a, you know, Republican was recently elected governor there, um, but it had a Democratic governor, a Democratic legislature that had adopted these uh, uh, policies. Um, but then you have states that have unified Republican control, which are the ones that are um, generating these, these uh, changes to voting policy. 
Some of those are in the South, some are not. So um, back when the Voting Rights Act was enacted and this regime was first created, um, it was you know, overwhelmingly these Southern states, which had massive disenfranchisement of black voters and many poor white voters. Um, and it was really concentrated in that area. Now, what I see is partisan political dynamics uh, driving uh, a lot of the fighting over voting rights policy at the state level. Back, back in 2021, um, you, you, I'm, I'm testing your powers of recall here, uh, <laughs> Professor Provost. You, you, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, and I'm paraphrasing it, but you, you offered that every political reform proposed should be measured by how it fuels or weakens extremist candidates. And if I get that, if I got that right, say more about that if you would. Yeah, so after 2020, I became very concerned about this issue as I assume many people you know, did which is the, these extremist forces in our politics um, and you know, how threatening they are to the stability of, of, of the system of elections and democracy in the United States. And when we talk about voting rights or any kind of democratic reforms, there, there, there are a lot of different democratic values that we want to achieve. And sometimes those can be in conflict. Sometimes there are trade-offs you have to face. Uh, and what I was saying in that op-ed is, the, the threat to the system from these extremist forces is so great right now that uh, I wanted to really focus and I thought reform should focus uh, on, on, on structural changes that could help mitigate the effect that those extremist forces are having on our politics. And those uh, institutional changes, you know, range from things like um, how to design primary elections. I mean, basically the idea is we don't want to have a system in which candidates who appeal to a, a, a faction, a minority faction, are still able to gain and capture office. We want a system in which candidates who have the broadest electoral appeal, you know, who basically represent what a majority of the electorate want, uh, are more likely to be able to get into office. That's certainly one of the things I would focus on. Um, and what that means is um, in the context of primary elections, you know, one of the things we now recognize uh, is that the way things work, uh, the, the primaries uh, are major pressures driving candidates to the extremes. Um, the, the more uh, they're worried about being beaten in the primary if they're an incumbent by a candidate who's more extreme. They, they tack to the right or the left to try to preempt that. Um, more extreme candidates in party primaries can prevail, even though the person they defeat would actually have the broadest appeal in the general election if they could get through. So to make this concrete, an example of the kind of reform I'm talking about here is in Alaska, Voters in 2020 adopted a structure, which they're going to be using now, in which the, there won't be party primaries. They're using what they call a top four primary structure. And what that means is 
all the candidates run in a single primary. They can identify themselves as uh, prefers the Republican Party, prefers the Democratic Party, is independent, whatever. Uh, and the people who get the top four vote, who, you know, who win the most votes, the top four vote getters, then go on to the general election. And then in the general election, they use ranked choice voting to decide the winner of the election. Is, is, is that in response to um, Lisa Murkowski losing her primary and running independent? Is that, is that part of that? Well, I that? think it's, it's, that's in the background. Um, I think that it's, um, it's in response to voters feeling like with a traditional party primary structure, they are often left with a choice between two more extreme candidates. And, and feeling like that the, the prior structure of traditional party primaries isn't giving them uh, the kind of candidates that they're looking for. And, you know, the, Lisa Murkowski is a very good example of how this structure is going to work, because, as you know, um, because she uh, uh, defied President Trump on uh, particular issues, um, he's really gone after her and made it his mission to defeat her. I think he even called it his number one mission after Liz Cheney. Um, and, um, and, and there are candidates, you know, who have now, uh, who are, you know, Republicans who are challenging her um, in the primary process. Now, in the traditional primary structure that we're, we are used to, she might very well not be able to survive a Republican primary at this point, but she might still be the person in Alaska that voters, uh, over, you know, a majority of voters prefer. In the top four primary structure, someone like Lisa Murkowski is very likely to be one of the top four vote getters. And so she will actually make it to the general election, presumably. Uh, and then with ranked choice voting, which is a system that helps identify the candidate that the majority of voters prefers, um, you know, she might stand a very good chance of winning, even though she would not be able to survive a Republican Party primary. So that's an example of, an, of a structural change that uh, helps uh, candidates with the broadest appeal actually get elected to office rather than factional candidates who might win a party primary might be able to get elected, even though only 30%, 35, 40% of, of people actually prefer that candidate. Um, that is when faced with a, I'm not sure if I said that the, the most um, uh, clear way, uh, but you know, a candidate who can, who can win a party primary with 30% of the vote. And then because voters in Alaska, let's say are overwhelmingly likely to elect a Republican, are going to go ahead and vote for that factional candidate, even though if a second candidate like Lisa Murkowski was available as a choice, a majority of voters would prefer her. There are other things that I think can also be done to mitigate the, the factional or more extremist candidates. Uh, I'm a big proponent in the context of, of um, election districting uh, of emphasizing the importance of creating competitive districts because I think competitive districts uh, drive candidates to have to appeal uh, to the center of the electorate um, and do not reward extremist candidates 
in the same way that safe seats, which are overwhelmingly stacked for one party or the other, uh, enable extremist candidates to get into office and stay in office. Unfortunately, one of the things that's happened in this round of redistricting is um, they've wiped out, um, it, it looks like given where we are in the process, they're gonna wipe out about 50% of the competitive seats in Congress. Um, and and only will only end up with seven or eight percent of the seats in Congress being competitive, which I think is going to make uh, for more extremist candidates getting elected and and make it even harder for Congress to function. I guess more fundamentally, ours is a system that even with the democ the laws of democracy, ours is a system that ultimately depends on the will of the people. Um, can we survive if a growing number of people, regardless of party, distrust not only institutions, but the outcome that those institutions produce? Um, you know, like I've said before, I, I guess the way I would put it is that's a very dangerous situation. I don't know what it means, can we survive? Um, I don't know if that means, um, you know, will we have violent conflict? Um, but I, I, I would say for sure, it's a very, very dangerous and unhealthy situation if large numbers of people do not trust the outcome of free and fair elections. That is not a place we want to be. Uh, I'm certainly doing what, what I can through policy reform and the like, uh, you know, to try to forestall that situation. You, you, you uh, clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall. So I want to end by having you offer any thoughts how he might approach this current moment in terms of the law of democracy. Well, it was, of course, uh, one of the great honors of my life to be a, a law clerk, law clerk to, uh, to Justice Marshall, who uh, you know many people describe as the most significant lawyer of the 20th century in the United States. Um, he was a, both a great man and, a, and an incredibly courageous uh, man. Um, uh, one of the things that people I'm not sure fully appreciate about him is, uh, you know, that even, even though he grew up under um, uh, the regime of Plessy versus Ferguson um, and was, of course, the lawyer who helped dismantle it, um, winning Brown versus the Board of Education, you know, he, he still was one of these um, figures who, who really believed in the American system, really believed in the law, thought the system could be perfected, needed to be perfected, um, but believed, you know, ultimately in the, the process and, um, and, and in American democracy. Um, and I think that, um, you know, it's always a little bit, uh, speculative to imagine what, you know, somebody, uh, you know, would think about a situation that they never experienced. Um, he died, you know, roughly 30 years ago. Um, you know, I think he would be very, very troubled uh, about the distrust um, uh, that's present right now. I, I think he would believe, you know, in the system, um, would want to see it, you know, reform to, made, to be made better. Um, you know, would think that courts have a major role to play in ensuring that 
our elections are lawful and comply with the law, that people can't get away with manipulating the process for partisan reasons, uh, whether it's in adopting voting policies or in the counting process. Um, but, um, you know, I would expect he would be very troubled, very concerned, and, um, uh, and, and still, you know, a believer that things can be improved and that we can uh, get to a better place. Professor Richard Pilders, I want to thank you once again for taking some of your valuable time to join us today on the public morality. Your insights have been much appreciated, sir. Thank you. Well, you know, I always enjoy talking with you because it's such a good substantive discussion that uh, in our soundbite age is more difficult to have. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, for all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.